1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. My name is Andy Boyd, and today I'm talking with Ben Pickett, author of the book Henry Cow, The World is a Problem. Ben, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Could you describe a bit of the kind of intellectual journey that that led you to write a book about Henry Cow?
0: Um, well, I'm a cultural historian, and I my previous research has been on experimental and improvised music. Um, and I've specifically always been interested in where that um, aesthetic and intellectual formation has come up against its edges, how it's defined itself against various others. And I had previously done more work on um, a boundary with the Black avant-garde the free jazz avant-garde specifically in New York in the 1960s and the kinds of overlaps um, that that movement shared with the world of experimental music associated with John Cage and how various borders were drawn and redrawn between those two worlds. And I had been looking for a case to that would allow me to examine the border between those worlds and popular music. Because I had a feeling that um, those three things were coming into relation a little bit later in the 1960s, and I wanted to yeah, investigate that relationship. I mean... Um, oh, sorry.
1: Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: I would add that... Um, the idea of like what, what is experimentalism in relation to popular music, I thought that could be an interesting historical question, not a formal or philosophical one. Like a, a philosophical approach would be, what does it mean to experiment in popular music? I was not interested in that. I wanted to know about uh, when historical actors were began to position themselves in relation to the kinds of questions and discourses that were already associated with experimental music. And I thought that that could happen, uh, that that was happening probably by, by the late 1960s. And Henry Cow seemed like a good way to, um, to get into this problem, just because the band uh, related to a lot of different fields that one might associate with experimental music or with adventurous music. You know, they collabor- They collaborated with composers. They uh, performed with free jazz musicians. They collaborated with art rock people like Robert Wyatt, Pink Floyd. They toured with Captain Beefheart and Faust. So I kind of thought that Henry Cow turned inside out would let me talk about these intersections in a productive way.
1: Sure. Yeah, that totally makes sense. How would you uh, describe Henry Cow to someone who's never heard them?
0: Um, well, there were
1: many Henry Cows.
0: Um, the band, you know, the band was founded in May 1968 by two undergraduates at Cambridge University, Fred Frith and Tim Hodgkinson, and they lasted for ten years. And many different members of that group came into and out of the organization over those 10 years, uh, 10, 11, 12 people, depending on how you count. So we're dealing with a lot of different influences and histories that changed the sound of the group over that period. Um, I would say their music ranged from a jazz-based Um, uh, free improvisation style to a more electrified chamber music um, feel. They played fully notated and composed works. Um, They did a lot of open improvisation with live electronics. They worked with tape um, very productively, noisy experiments um, with Live and recorded sound. Um, so yeah, they were a little bit all over the map. I mean, it was for the most part difficult music, I would say, after the first five or six years.
1: <laughs> but it's still, I mean, most of it, or at least most of it that I've I've heard, is still kind of grounded in a rock idiom, right? Yes, I think
0: ultimately. Well, one of the one of the anytime you look at histories of musical genres. You find that, um, despite a rhetoric around the erasing of boundaries among genres, those boundaries are constantly getting reaffirmed by other um, uh, uh, other institutions that uh, would contribute to the formation, like journalism, for example, or educational institutions. So Henry Cow did its best to confuse genre space but i would say that they were firmly rooted in rock not just by the background of most of the musicians not all but most um but also in how critics continued to write about them mm-hmm. but part of it is also the difference between the public record and the private one henry Cow recorded four studio albums during their lifetime um 3 of those were for Richard Branson's Virgin Records and a fourth was for their own label right at the end of the right before the band broke up. And their studio albums were always quite a bit different from what they were actually playing on stage and they were primarily, you know, a touring live band and that's where they got into some really interesting musical territory in my opinion. Some of that is preserved on the studio recordings, but not a lot of it, uh, those later, I should say those, um, those live recordings have eventually come out in reissues and bootlegs and stuff and give a much fuller, better picture of what the band was up to.
1: So when you were re- writing this book, did you sort of like listen to hundreds of hours of soundboard tapes and stuff like that?
0: More than I would like to admit or recall. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, what we've said so far about this band might make people think they're sort of what you might think of as like a jam band. Um, but how did their, the way they approached improvisation differ from the way that say, you know, the Grateful Dead approached improvisation? Oh, that's funny um,
0: that you put it that way. I remember one, uh, one of my, I did a lot of interviews for this book because um, for the most part, everybody is still around and um Jack Balchin, who was one of the longest uh, members of the organization as a roadie and technician, I remember him telling a story of uh, uh, I think when Lindsey Cooper first joined the band, uh, and the group were just running through some music uh, to to, to um, you know break her in, break her into the band, and experiment with how they could play together, and um, let's say. Balchin remembered that the style was something a little bit more like jazz rock or something maybe something a little generic and boring. I remember he said that he yelled out over the uh, over the mix that's not improvisation that's jamming <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah I would say that ultimately um, by 71 72 that is, a couple of years into their existence, Henry Cow had settled on improvisation as a kind of technique to get out of themselves, get out of a situation and into a new one. Uh, a phrase that I use a couple of times in the book is that improvisation for Henry Cow was a means of turning certainties into uncertainties and then. Converting those uncertainties into a new certainty. So in other words, a kind of practice of opening up problems and, or creating problems for themselves to have to get out of. Um, and that's the way that I think that kind of abstract and expansive philosophy of improvisation feels the most true for me in relation to this group. That is not at, simply as a style of soloing over mm-hmm. A series of chord changes, which they
1: also did,
0: but so much more.
1: One of the um, documents that you reproduce in the book is an early set list from, I think, one of the first Henry Cow shows. And what strikes what strikes me about it is that it is just sort of uh, utterly generic as a as a list of like American blues and R and B covers. Um that you know it could have, this could be an early set list by the Rolling Stones or by the Who or by the Kinks or or whoever. So how did Henry Cow sort of break off of that that path of doing kind of blues-based rock music and and find their way to this more experimental music?
0: That's a great question. Yeah, that's I I know the set list you're talking about. That was characteristic of the era era that I think I referred to in the book as um standard issue white boy blues.
1: Sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, they're, you know, like everybody age 18, 19, 20, especially musicians, their aesthetic frame of reference is expanding dramatically and very quickly during those years. Um, they're trading records. They're learning about uh, new musics. They had a mem- one member of the group, early member of the group named Andrew Powell, uh, had been a student of the composer Cornelius Cardieu, had attended the Darmstadt summer courses, an important institution for you know, European modernist art music and avant-garde music. He was passing them recordings of music by uh, Luciano Berio or Karl Heinz Stockhausen, Terry Riley. Um, so they, you know, new sounds were flowing into the group. Uh, Until that moment, you know, yeah, Fred Frith was really into the blues. He was really into modern jazz. Tim Hodgkinson was more into, you know, post-John Coltrane, free jazz, Impulse Records. So they were getting some new stuff. Um, Probably the most significant push was the addition of Lindsey Cooper into the band in um, very early 1974. She was trained at the Royal Academy of Music. She played the bassoon and the oboe. She would soon add the flute and the saxo- and a couple of different saxophones to her instrumentarium. Lindsey Cooper just had a completely different frame of reference. She loved um, she loved Stravinsky. She loved uh, Bartok, and just the colors that she was able to add to the sound of the group. By virtue of her uh, by virtue of her instruments, it opened up areas to them that just hadn't quite been opened before. I remember John Greaves, the bass player, said uh, he said something like, "This is serious. She's got an oboe and she knows how to use it.
1: <laughs> That's a great line. Uh, we were talking a bit before we started recording about the Henry Cow fan base, which is quite, Uh, active, um, though small but mighty, perhaps. Uh, and, And you mentioned that even before you released the book, you had Henry Cow fans contacting you to kind of tell you what they thought about Henry Cow. So what did you kind of learn about this band by talking to fans of the band?
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, it's funny to think about that. For me, I have, my past research and my current research, for the most part, is on musical topics that are rather esoteric. Um, I don't want them to be, and I don't want to write in an esoteric manner. I want my scholarship to speak to anybody who wants to read it. However, when, as I quickly learned, like we were saying before, when I started working on a book about a rock group, that amplified those... um, (laughs) those concerns, there were people who were letting me know that they were really interested and um, excited to read whatever it was I was going to write. And I had never been in that position before. I had written about living people. I still do. Um, I enjoy writing about living artists. I I enjoy doing interviews. I enjoy the, um, the kind of ethical entanglements, the trust and the difficulties of working with living people. Um, so I had some experience, but yes, a fan base, that was a new, (laughs) that was a new term that I had to negotiate. I should say, um, another way to answer your question is the following. I don't think, I never thought of this book as engaging in fan studies. I do not do fan studies. I didn't really write the book because I love Henry Cow. You know, there were other reasons that, or that, or that I loved Henry Cow's music. So you know, some of their music I like a lot, not all of it. Um, so it wasn't about love of the, love of the aesthetic product, which is how a fa- that's what a fan cares about, right? And I think that this could be a difference between a scholarly approach and one that's informed more like one that would be taken by a music critic or a journalist who also write great books. But when they get to long books based on love of the music, have a risk of taking the form of then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, you know, Mm -hmm. they kind of fizzle out because... They lack the intellectual scaffolding of a method or a theory, an argument, historiography, right, on which to hang all of that love, right? Um, I mean, there are certainly good journalists' books, and there are poor scholarly ones. <laughs> right. But, <there's laughs> uh, but in yeah.
1: I mean, most of the, you know, somebody writes a biography of the Rolling Stones. They're they're trying to tell you what happened and, you know, how sticky fingers was recorded, not necessarily, you know, how. How, Rolling Stone fits, how the Rolling Stones fit into the sort of uh, dialectic between high and low culture or whatever. Exactly. There's exactly. a different aim there. Yeah.
0: And however, to come back to your question about fans and the readership for the book, um, what I learned in this project is um, that one has a certain responsibility to those people too they're very important to the history of this band. They're the ones who were doing the archival and collection work that allowed me to sit with bootleg and board recordings for a year and a half, you know? I wouldn't have been able to do that without those colleagues. I consider them colleagues. Um, So for me, as a writing problem, this became... Well, when, when when I... when I describe, there there are various points in the book where I try to describe the music, um, this piece or this track on an album or this improvisation, uh, the style of improvisation they were um, uh, they were performing in the spring of 1977 or something. That when I got into descriptions of the music, I kind of set myself the goal of describing it in a way that like anybody who would like this music would that's how they would think about it. you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. regardless of whether I loved it or not, I would like force myself to be a fan and write about how a fan maybe would hear it. And I found that to be a really um, productive approach. I really enjoyed that um, and I feel like it made me uh, it, in, I don't know, it increased my resp- my sense of responsibility to the people who are going to be reading it. You know, even if they may have had uh, a different way of hearing this or that song than the one that
1: I had. Right. Yeah, there's something um, very intimidating about writing a book that's going to be uh, read by like non-professional nerds, you know, like that, that they might know, you know, exactly when each piece premiered first live. And you maybe don't know that type of detail, but you have a different kind of training and different resources that you can bring to bear on the same material. And
0: they, many of them helped me enormously with mm-hmm. exactly those details you just mentioned, because rock, you know, rock nerds, they really care about the difference between June tenth and June thirteenth, nineteen seventy six and what <laughs> happened. And And you know what? I do too. <laughs> um, but it's always good to have other people who share that obsession uh, with minutia. Double check that you're not, because if, if you know you have a lot, you have a certain responsibility when you're writing a book that's going to end up on library shelves for decades. You have a responsibility to make sure your facts are right. And by the way, I've already discovered like one or two where I didn't quite get it right, or something fell out in edit in the editing process. But that happens with every you know every sure. scholarly endeavor, really.
1: Um, shifting tack a little bit, I'd love to talk about the politics of Henry Cow. Henry Cow was a, an avowedly socialist group, uh, even though they had members from sort of varying different class backgrounds. There were some, some very uh, upper class backgrounds and very working class backgrounds, but they kind of all uh, kind of coalesced around a certain understanding of Marxism. Could you describe kind of what their politics were and how that intersected with their musical practice?
0: yeah sure. um, the politics are that's that was another I probably should have mentioned before that was one of the main hooks for me too that um, in looking for the subject of a book, um I've always enjoyed uh, following the the struggles of artists, musicians, in working out the relationship between of what they're doing to to political questions. Henry cow, you know. As you said, it's a, very, it's a pretty varied group of people with uh, an enormously diverse set of class backgrounds. I could say properly one of those 10 or 12 people comes from an um, upper-class family. The rest mm-hmm. are somewhere between middle, lower middle class, and working class. Uh, John Greaves, for example, the first bass player for Henry Cow. Um, you know, he was the first person in his family to go to college and his, his, uh, all of his classmates at primary school ended up in the mines in the black country in North Wales. So there's an interesting range of people here. Um, it is true though, that they were all on the left, some in some form or another. Um, when they they were keenly aware of rock music as a cultural site of um, enormous exploitation of the um, of a kind of ideology, a, a fantasy world of individual freedom and um, uh, uh, lack of responsibility, hedonistic uh, celebration, uh, hedonistic sensual um gratification stuff like that they often wanted to work against that um they thought of improvisation to return to that topic as a way to um undercut any claims to individuality right because whenever you're improvising you have to be improvising with something else even if you're improvising alone and they thought that improvisation was a good way to decenter the individual And that extended to their relationship as a band to their audience. Um, They thought that playing difficult music, even if it was notated uh, or noisy electronic improvisations, would foster dialogue with the audience, even if that meant that the (laughs) <laughs> it would foster do- dialogue between members of the audience, some of whom supported the band and others hated, hated the band. They wanted to <laughs> produce that kind of dialogue or criticality, right? So a lot of their politics were, um, though informed by Marx and Mao, um, they were directed toward their immediate circumstances in the entertainment industry and as composers, So another big thing about their politics, uh, which relates to this resistance to the individual, is they were constantly looking for um, uh, new ways to exercise the power of the collectivity. So they were always experimenting with ideas about collective composition, what that could mean. You know, that we've had the period of the bourgeois composer, the individual, what lies beyond that period historically for them, that meant some kind of collectivity. So that's why they were so motivated to, um, experiment in the recording studio. Um, they found that recording technology by taking them out of the temporal flow of a live performance, it allowed them to discuss compositional decisions outside of real time. Um, and experiment with uh, uh, collective compositional techniques um, without that pressure of, you know, um, uh, without that pressure of doing it on the spot as as a collective improvisation. Though, of course, collective improvisation itself is the strongest and most obvious form that their um, that their cooperative politics could take in music.
1: Could you describe a bit about how they kind of used the recording studio uh, as a compositional aid? It strikes me as something that was maybe only possible at this time for somebody on a big label like Virgin, but but now it would be uh, much more familiar to current musicians.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. It would have only been available to someone with their resources. Um, Although by the end of the band's, I think it was late 1977 um, when they were in talks with the Arts Council of Great Britain, which would be like for U.S. listeners, that's like our na- National Endowment of the Arts, um, though funded to a much greater extent. They were, um, they were receiving going to receive a large grant from that organization, and they included in their kind of blue sky thinking request um, a massive amount of money to set up their own recording studio and i think that that they only ever that they they only ever really could imagine that possibility by the late 1970s that was completely mm-hmm. outside of their realm of imagination even 5 years before but um yeah the i mean a good example of their collective studio practice i think can be found on the the second side of their 1974 album unrest which I think is one of the best sides of music they ever recorded. And particularly a piece called Deluge. Um, When they recorded, remember before I said, they, they tended to, they tended to create problems for themselves to force themselves to find solutions. And I think of that as a fundamental, fundamentally improvisational, you know, stance on the world. The world is a problem. And they, that's what that's um that's what they were doing in the second half of unrest they didn't have enough material to fill out a whole album they booked the time and they were anyway and they were going to force themselves to come up with that material in the case of so they did a lot of improvising together as the whole group um smaller subsections of the group editing overdubbing in the case of deluge um I think it was drums, bass and guitar were noodling around together, recorded a bit of an improvisation, a beat, a loose beat. And um, the group was listening to it later and they thought, oh, maybe, you know, we could use this. Yeah, we could use this, but um, you don't, but you don't do, you're not doing that as long as we need you to do that. So, okay, uh, let's, let's make a tape loop. Well, we'll cut the tape and we'll just repeat it. So, Deluge is based on a a long loop. I can't. I think it's forty seconds. Um, mm-hmm. It's probably you know. I mean, it wound all the way around the control room when they were doing the recording. It was a very mm-hmm. long loop. Um, once they had made that loop, then uh, Lindsey Cooper could go out into the live room, monitor the loop as an accompaniment. And overdub uh, another improvisation on top of that. I think on, I can't remember, on soprano sax or something. Uh, then they all came back in together, listened to the mix. Oh, okay, drop Lindsay out for this, you know, for these first minute and a half, then bring her in later. Well, Tim, why don't you go out and try to add something, um, you know, uh, add something on clarinet? So then Tim goes out. So they kind of would gradually build the mix that way um, and then maybe drop out part of what they had recorded at the very beginning that provided the backbone for the whole piece. So now you have only a collection of improvisations to an original track that is no longer present in the mix. That would be a kind of half hypothetical, half real example of what they saw in the studio as an environment to uh, compose with.
1: So, so that that improvisation becomes the sort of base unit of a broader composition, which also includes improvisation.
0: Exactly. Turning uncertainty into certainty.
1: Yeah. um, That seems like something not a lot of other people were doing at the time. I mean, I think of maybe, uh, you know, an album like Tribute to Jack Johnson. I think Miles Davis recorded that album in a similar way of kind of picking stuff out of these hours long jams and, and kind of stitching it together. Was that something that they had kind of been inspired by in the jazz world? Um,
0: to my knowledge, no. Their immediate, ins- although what you said is right. Yes, Miles Davis was putting together albums by the late 1960s in exactly that way. Um, except, of course, it was Teo Macero who cut the tapes together. In other words, it was one person making the decisions mm, about yeah. cuts, sculpting stuff, right? Henry Cow. Everybody it, I think Tim Hodgkinson said later, um, he said something like, with Henry Cow, the, like the band was always there. It always had to be the band acting as one, and that made them enormously inefficient. It, it made certain processes really frustrating. It produced a lot of tension, anxiety, unrest. You know the name the the name of the record reflected the psychic state of the group while they were doing it, but that was the necessary filter um, that they thought they that 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 they thought was required. You know to 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 experiment with musical composition outside of that single unitary um, uh, say producer in the case of Tio Macero. In their case, though. Um, the the most immediate inspiration was the German rock group called Faust, uh, who were doing all of these um, diffused studio practices for a couple of years before Henry Cow made it to them. And Henry Cow heard those records, and like most people who heard those Faust records, they were um, intrigued, fascinated, very impressed.
1: Yeah. You mentioned Faust, which I think is a good segue into talking about Slap Happy, which was a a sort of German humor pop experimental group that they briefly merged with. Could you describe that episode a bit? Sure. Um,
0: Yeah, Slap Happy. Well, okay. Faust was signed to um, Polydor Records in Germany. Um, their manager Uwe Nettelbeck was um, was a kind of talent scout for Polydor, and was very impressed pressed with Faust and sold them to Polydor. as kind of like the you know um, the next big thing in rock music. This was representative of the general tenor of the times. The Beatles had broken up. The, in the rock field, the Beatles had kind of driven every micro-stylistic innovation and sales trend for a long time. When the Beatles are out of the picture, a lot of these big labels are really concerned about what's going to come next. So there's a little window open there where they were taking risks uh, that they had never taken before and would never take again. And that window closes by 74 or 75, something like that. So Faust slipped through that window.
1: As did Henry Cow at Virgin.
0: Exactly. And by the way, Virgin, of course, signed Faust after Polydor dumped them. And it's Virgin who released uh, Faust's uh, third studio album, as well as the Faust tapes, which is a collection of studio outtakes that was pr- uh, sold at pr- basically as a sampler. So you have Faust there in Hamburg uh, working with Polydor. Nettlebeck also sold to Polydor um, the pop project Slap Happy. Slap Happy was Anthony Moore and Peter Blegvad. Blegvad was an American living and going to school, going to attend a university at Exeter in the UK. Um, Anthony Moore was a Brit who was living in Hamburg. Um, they, had go, they had attended secondary school together. Moore and Blackfad. They were old friends. They wrote pop songs um, together. Anthony Moore was also what I think he, he in the, at that time, he would have said he was also a more serious composer writing um, tape loop-based minimalist music that was reminiscent of a Terry Riley or somebody like that. So um, once they got their pop deal, they couldn't believe it. And they it they extended the joke as long as they could, and eventually they added Dagmar Krause. Um, in fact, they added Dagmar Krause, the singer, during their first recording session for Polydor, because it became quickly evident to everyone there that Peter Blegvad was not going to be a good enough vocalist to carry this band. Um, I think Peter's pretty good, but... Um, He wasn't at Dagmar's level. So Dagmar stepped in. She became the glue that really um, turned Slap Happy into something serious. And um, that trio recorded its first two records with the rhythm section of Faust backing them up. And they recorded at Faust's studio in Vuma outside of Hamburg. So once Slap Happy also got dropped by Polydor... Um, They were looking around for a new label. Virgin Records had made um, was you know, Virgin Records had released its first um, albums in in the spring of 1973. Um, They had already had a reputation as a home for oddball, strange, somewhat unusual, um, high-minded connoisseurs rock music, right? So a cassette of Slap Happy naturally made its way to Simon Draper, who was um, the artistic director of the label, and Simon played that cassette for members of Henry Cow in the in Virgin's offices off Portobello Road, and Henry Cow loved it. They thought it was great. They thought that that Virgin should sign Slap Happy and. Um, they volunteered to serve as Slap Happy's backing group um, when they came to record their first studio album for Virgin. And that's exactly what happened.
1: Um, How did that collaboration go?
0: It was another example. So this happened late 74. It was another example of going in there with half finished material. In other words, a problem and using everything they had available to them to solve that problem. They used the, they experimented with recording techniques with orchestration and arrangements. They everybody really loved it. Um, Anthony Moore, Peter Blegvad, Dagmar Krause, they were all um, highly educated, sophisticated bohemians, you know. Anthony Moore was composing music for experimental films. He, uh, he was making fantastically inventive music, completely outside of any accredited um, educational background. He, he didn't have a composition teacher or anything. He didn't care about any of that. He was just making incredible music. Uh, Peter Blegvat had more of a background in the literary arts and poetry. He knew everything about the history of the avant-garde. These were just really fun people to be around. And when they finished that record, which would end up being called Desperate Straits, Henry Cow invited Slap Happy to help them with their next record, In Praise of Learning. So that they went and recorded that in the winter of 75. Having Dagmar Krause was presented a whole new set of possibilities and problems, you know, because when you have a singer you need, the singer has to have something to do. And that means that she needs words. And that means somebody has to write lyrics. So this was a new problem for Henry Cow that they loved. It opened up a dimension of their politics um, to explicit statement, which had not been there before really. Um, So it became, in the course of recording that album, however, it became evident that, It would be more difficult to integrate Peter Blegvad and Anthony Moore into Henry Cow. Um, They were a little bit, how would we say, a bit more carefree in their attitudes toward life. I mean, Henry Cow were uh, uh, on the austere side, you know? Mm -hmm. They, I mean, they were funny, but they were serious about their project. They took themselves seriously. I happen to find that very inspirational. Slap Happy did not take themselves seriously even though they were serious artists. So there were problems with temperament. And it was also, I mean, Peter couldn't learn the music. It was too hard for him. He couldn't learn the parts. Anthony Moore was not really that interested in live performance. So when the possibility presented itself for these two groups to merge, um, Dagmar loved it because she wanted to get in front of audiences. She had been in a group called the City Preachers, a kind of uh, urbane folk group in in Germany. But it had been a couple of years since she had been in front of uh, live audiences, and she really wanted that. She saw that she could get it with Henry Cow. Um, So it became clear that um, the future for Dagmar would be with Henry Cow and not with Slap Happy, and that's essentially what broke uh, broke up the merged group. I mean, the merger lasted for three months, you know. In some, in the opinions of some, such as Antony, um, they were never merged, you know, they were experimenting and it, the experiment failed.
1: So the band Henry Cow broke up in 1978, but many of the members of Henry Cow have since. Gone on to, to continue making music. Could you tell us a bit about their kind of post Henry Cow careers?
0: Um, only in the most general way, uh, because at least for me, it was important to end my story with the end of the band. In other words, my <laughs> see, Andy, this question is charged with narratives about how to even understand the history of Henry Cow. Um, so for that reason it's a little bit complicated. In my opinion, the work that Henry Cow had to do, the work that Henry Cow set itself to tackle was the problem of collectivity, how to struggle together and against themselves, against uh against themselves and against the world. Okay, and with the world. Um some members of the band thought that when when Henry Cow ended, in fact, in the press release that went out announcing um, the termination of the group, which was a preemptive press release because they would then go on to tour for another four months to honor their commitments, uh, which created a lot of emotional problems. Um, in that press release, um, they said... Um, Henry Cow. the group, will come to an end, but the work continues. And not everybody agreed with that because the work, the problem was the problem of collectivity, not continuing on separately, right? Um, So having said that about the general shape, why the question is, is complicated, I will just say that all of them go on to extraordinarily impressive careers um often in collaboration with each other in various subgroupings. groupings um, the most notable being art bears the group the fantastic group of fred frith chris cutler and dagmar krause um, in the immediate aftermath of henry cow but lots of other groups um they Form and reform bands projects for the next 40 years. Um, Georgina Bourne, who was the second bass player in the band, she replaced John Greaves. She was also a cellist. She would, when she left Henry Cow, she played in a variety of groups um, before going back to university, studying anthropology, and eventually becoming. Um, a formidable intellectual and a senior mentor to me in my field of music studies. <laughs> and she is a <laughs> professor at Cambridge, or at the University of Oxford now, um, has written um, innumerable, highly influential articles and books about these very questions and problems. Um I would say one other really important thing that came out of Henry Cow or in the immediate years afterwards was the Feminist Improvising Group, which was formed by Lindsay Cooper and Maggie Nichols, but also included Georgina Bourne, as well as Irena Schweitzer um, and various other participants. Um, You know, Henry Cow was one of the things that attracted me to that group is – it's the picture it presented on stage, especially after 1976, when they were even gender split on stage, three men and three women. Um, a couple years before that, Lindsay and Dagmar, were it was two and four. Um, but they also had an even gender split in the crew, which maybe in rock was even more unusual and rare than an even gender split on stage. And... Um, so, if you want to tell a story in rock you know that has women in it, you don't have a lot of options and that appealed to me about this band um, nonetheless, despite the appearance of a of a progressive gender politics, you know henry cow it they reproduced you know relations of power that were patriarchal in nature. And one of the effects of those power relations was the formation of the feminist improvising group um, that was only for women, played largely to largely activist female audiences. And that would be an example of where I think Henry Cow creates problems and then generates new and interesting solutions that outlasted the end of the band in 1978.
1: Well, Ben Pickett, I think that's a a wonderful note to end on. Thanks so much for being on New Books in Performing Arts to talk about your book, Henry Cow, The World is a Problem.
0: Thank you so much for the invitation, Andy. It was my pleasure.